This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. I hear quite a bit of talk in the countryside about solar projects. Many landowners have been approached by companies interested in purchasing or leasing land for such ventures. What are the potential opportunities and pitfalls for those contracts? It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. When it comes to using nitrogen on my corn, the more predictable, the better. And that's why I've been using Pivot Bio Proven 40 on my corn for the past two seasons. With Pivot Bio, I know my crops are getting the nitrogen they need, no matter the weather. And now that same predictability is available right on the corn seed. Pivot Bio Proven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen than ever before. To learn more, contact your local sales rep or just go to pivotbio.com. Depending on where you live, solar panels may be everywhere or nowhere. There are some people in cities and on the farm who have installed panels on top of their homes or buildings. However, this week's show is about the larger projects that may cover many acres of land. From what I hear on my travels and from my own experience, there are many offers being made by a variety of companies, and the numbers being tossed around can certainly catch one's eye, perhaps $1,000 per acre per year. I caught up with Nathan Fabrick and Clark Merritt with NLR Solar, a division of National Land Realty. NLR works with both solar developers and landowners and can provide a good perspective from both sides of the contract. As you'll hear, Clark was truly on the road for this interview, and both gentlemen certainly have a lot of experience in the area. So we discuss some of the opportunities and cautions with those agreements. Nathan Fabrick and Clark Merritt join me, and we're going to be talking a bit about solar projects because I know of many of us in agriculture that are at least hearing about these, and maybe you've even received letters or folks stopping by talking about a possible solar project should you get involved and so forth. So uh, first of all, I'm just going to to go over to Nathan and Clark, and, and perhaps you, Nathan, first. Maybe you want to describe how you're involved in this, the company that you're with, because uh, you're out there, and Clark as well, talking to a lot of landowners and helping people understand. But let's first maybe have a, a bigger overview of the subject we're talking about. That's great, Andrew. Thanks for having us on. really appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, NLR Solar, we are real estate consultants that help match solar developers with suitable landowners and help them, uh, developers identify the right tracks for projects and help landowner understand the key terms to get them to a lease that makes sense for them. Um, over the last seven years, we've probably signed over 1,100 agreements all across the country. Um, so it's, as, as you know, the solar wave has, has really grown in the last few years. Um, and we've we've had the benefit of being a part of it really since the beginning of this wave. So yeah, that's a, that's a bit about our firm and our business. You know, we're going to focus on solar, but I'm interested because many of us out in the countryside have had wind projects in some places come through. Are these solar projects going to be similar to to wind? Do you still see as much wind, or, or do you even deal in those type of things, or are you totally solar? Because I think some of us out here look at them somewhat the same because you still receive a solicitation to use your land for one or both of those types of renewable energy projects. Yeah, in a lot of ways, the the the, the key drivers there with with any power or energy projects are, are going to be the grid and the interconnection to that grid. So. 
Um, probably a, a key driver is the substations and the power lines, um, which could work for interconnecting to a wind project or a solar project. Typically, the wind projects are much, much larger um, and, and really require this, you know, you know, thousand acres plus to, to build these scattered arrays of, uh, of wind turbines. Solar, it's a little more modular. And so we have the ability to build, you know, four or 500 acres, but um, they can even go down to as small as, you know, 15 to 20 acres for these gardens. Um, so there's a little more versatility for the, how they interconnect. Um, and I think the other big things for, for landowners to understand is, is, is the installation on the solar projects is much less invasive as we understand it, um, especially when it comes to the subsurface improvements. So if you're looking at a wind turbine that's going 100 feet under the ground with infrastructure and concrete to support the turbines, uh, if, if you dig into the solar projects, I mean, most of these are basically um, posts that are put into the ground over the arrays and the decommissioning at the end of the term is, is much less invasive um, and it's a smaller process. So those are a couple of the high points. So with these solar projects then, are they as closely tied, do you believe, to having to have substations or do you look at these and say, we have a lot more room to roam, so to speak, and be able to put these in a lot more areas or are we still looking at specific parcels that are, are more targeted by companies for those types of projects? Yeah, Andrew, it's a good question. So the substations are, are certainly an essential driver to any of these projects. Um, but the versatility for solar projects, for the unlike wind projects, um, they, they can scale up and scale down. And so you have certain projects and certain size substations are going to be on uh, these high tension power lines, and re, or they're going to re require a larger footprint for a larger project for solar. But um, you, we can even go as small as 15 to 20 acres for these community solar projects that tie into three-phase power. So, you know, long story short, I think the substations are still important, um, but there's much more versatility for the size of these projects, depending on the power infrastructure, uh, more so than just the substations. So let's talk about what landowners need to think about then. In many cases, I'm guessing the way this is working is is that landowners aren't necessarily going out and seeking solar, but it's solar companies in turn looking at their land and saying this is a good place for us to go. So if that is the case, and I'm approached by somebody, whether it's a letter or a call or an in-person visit, what are some of the first things that I need to be thinking about? You know, I think one of the biggest things these days is just understanding the developer and if they're a reputable, competent group to build a project. Um, there's been, as the solar industry is heated up, there, there's become a lot of uh, early stage developers that have come in to sign up lease options and then get a quick flip, um, which is which is certainly a concern. Um, and so I, I think one of the first things is, is understanding um, certainly what their plans are for the project, the size of the project, where they position the solar array, um, Hopefully, they'll be able to educate the landowner on the timelines and how long it will take to build one of these projects. Um, usually, it's anywhere between two and four years to work through the interconnection and the permitting process. Um, but, but I do think it's very important that you understand uh, the track record and background, uh, specifically if you can look for projects that they've built in the area um, or similar size projects that they've built in other parts of the country. Um, so that would be a first first place that we'd usually recommend starting for landowners. 
if it, I'm a landowner and somebody approaches me, how do I find out how reputable that com- that company is? Because in many cases, we're hearing from somebody that we've <laughs> perhaps never heard of before. Right, right. And, and, and it's an emerging industry. And so there, there sometimes isn't that much project history. But I think you can learn a lot from the websites. If you do a uh, little research on uh, what projects they've built, you can see, and that's that's evident in their, their project history. Most of this is, is fairly public information. Um, and, and the other thing is, is, is using the option premiums, uh, to vet them out as well. I mean, most of these lease options will include some early stage option premiums. Um, certainly everybody's interested in the big lease rate that's at the end of the line once the projects are built. Um, but making sure that these are, even though it, it is an expensive item for developers to, um, pay these option premiums because it's taken out of their operating capital for their development. Um, but it does it does uh, demonstrate their financial um, security and stability. Um, and so, you know, like any other real estate project, money talks. Um, so doing a little bit of research on that and looking at the terms. Um, but those are two things that are fairly easy to do from from anybody's seat if you're evaluating some some different development options. I know that you've written an article about this and you have some different questions that people should think about. And question number one is, is to ask, you know, is that really the actual dollar I'll receive? Because in some cases, the lease rates on these contracts may be $1,000 per acre and perhaps that land would be rented for agricultural purposes more at, you know, 200 250 So if somebody comes to me and says $1,000 an acre, is that what I should expect? How big of a windfall, so to speak, could I get from some of these projects? Yeah, I mean that is the number, and 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 with a properly structured lease, uh, if these the the real question is, do they have the ability to get the project complete? Um, because to build one of these uh, and develop it, they're going to be putting several hundreds of thousands of dollars by the end of it at risk. Um, and so, getting that lease rate in place when you sign the option, um, there isn't much room at the end of the project, like at the end of the option term for them to renegotiate. That usually is going to be the the true number that you'll get. Clark, let me turn to you. Why don't you share some of the things you're seeing on the ground? Because many times you're out there working on those contracts between the two parties. So what do you see? So, I mean, as far as navigating the value of lease rate on a landowner's property, what Nathan was getting is one of the variables to consider is where you are in the country. I mean, to a degree, you have to vet whether or not that developer that is, you know, reaching out cold to you um, <laughs> has any sort of integrity and how how informed they are on the particular market that your land sits within. If you look at the country from a very high level, it's made up of a lot of different markets and all of those different markets are nuanced and they drive different market rates for property. Sometimes that's driven by, you know, opportunity lost in using that, uh, that land for some sort of, you know, what's the highest and best use, you know, call it commercial or residential development. Sometimes it's a pure agricultural play and what you can get on lease rate. You know, there's a lot of factors where just because you've got land that can produce income agriculturally, it doesn't necessarily mean that where you are um, in the country for solar, that those things, that they correlate. It has more to do with uh, who the utility is, how expensive power is in that area, how robust the infrastructure is in that area, and how regulated or deregulated of a market. There's a lot of different factors. 
I wanted to ask that because I think for many farmers, they feel like, well, who really would be on my side? Maybe I find a local lawyer or attorney, but in many cases, they may not have the background in this. So who, in a sense, do you work with? Are you working with both to try to partner up uh, on these deals? Because for many of us, this is completely a new type of venture. Yeah, and Andrew, I think that's a pretty fair characterization. You know, we're, we're somewhat of matchmakers in the industry. We found our way into this um, through an opportunity to work with a handful of developers. Um, but in the last few years, what we've found ourselves is, is talking to many more landowners and trying to position their properties to this network of developers that we've qualified. Um, and so we, we do live in a place where we're trying to uh, help be an advocate for landowners. And you're exactly right. A lot of the attorneys or accountants in local markets, even real estate professionals, might not have the uh, background in the energy space to bring a lot of value in helping make sure that the right type of agreement is negotiated. Um, so we like to try to fill that gap. Is there a typical agreement uh, for these type of projects? So if I sign a lease and it goes forward, how many years are we usually talking? And then my other question is, is I'm pretty much giving up the entire use of that land, correct? Sometimes we think of a, a wind tower. Well, I can still farm underneath that because it's just one tower in one place. But with solar, I would be giving up probably all of my land. Would that be correct? You know, and inside the fence, yes. That's a, that's a good question. I mean, so whenever we position these arrays, um, there's not going to be any potential for um, farming within in the boundaries of the fence. But often these projects are somewhat modular and do not have to take up the full the full property. And so there's there's potential to farm and just use this as a diversification um, for your other properties. I, I know it's a little bit different than wind turbines in that regard. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, if you have multiple properties, you can just use a portion of those for solar. Clark, this may be a question for you. I know that you're out there working with a lot of farmers, but is there a typical good match uh, w with these type of projects? Some people are out there actively farming and they love to farm and so forth, but yet certainly the lease rate is attractive. Are these mostly, I would say, absentee landowners that are renting it out and, and now I see another purpose? Are these active farmers? What are you finding out there uh, for the folks that, that own the land? Who are they partnering up with on these projects? We really run into a, a wide variety of different types of landowners who are, are you know, finding interest in these type leases. Just the nature of the type of revenue they create being pretty fixed, long-term, very stable. Most of the property across the country is still owned by really the boomer generation. So the idea of long fixed income you know, maybe they're getting near retirement is generally pretty attractive for that person, whether they've been farming that themselves or whether they're an investor and they have tenants on the property and um, they're just long-term land buyers. On larger tracks, we see that that's typically who the property owners may be. Sometimes it's an institutional group as well. I'm interested with these uh, projects, if you're approached and, and perhaps you sign a contract, is there a percentage of those that do, in effect, go on and go through? So they're they're built. So I'm wondering about how many do go, you know, through, and then how long is the typical lease for most of these? So they do sit pretty fixed around a twenty year twenty year term initially, with four or five year options. We see a lot of that, and that's pretty consistent. Um, and, and the reason for that term is 
Usually the 20-year term is the initial power purchase agreement, which the utility is committed to buy power from that project. And then the owner of the project is going to want another uh, 20 years and extensions because that really falls along with the useful life of the panels. So that that property could be producing power for 40 years and assuming that they can get extensions with the power company, they're going to want to use all of that time. So really the, the biggest um, driver for the time there would be the, the useful life of, of those panels, which runs about 40 years. You asked a question earlier too that I wanted to get back to was, was the, you know, what can be done during the option time frame with landowners? And I think that is a bit of a misconception that when you think about these being being tied up during the option time frame, most of the developers will let you use your property just as you're using it today. Um, and so honestly, as we counsel our landowners, there isn't a lot of downside if you're picking up a reasonable option premium and you're working with a qualified developer that's making the investments in the project, even if they don't get built, um, you're probably no worse for wear that they you can continue using your property as uh, you know in the agriculture use that you were using it before. What happens at the ends of these end of these contracts? Are you left with a, a bunch of solar panels out there, or do most contracts have some stipulation that the land is brought back to where it was whenever they entered into that agreement? You know, m- almost every contract that we've ever seen is going to have some sort of decommissioning provision that's going to speak to what happens after the term is up. Um, I think the the big question that landowners ask is, can we get a performance bond? that will guarantee that this project will be decommissioned after we're finished with it. Uh, And so that is a bit of a sticking point for some developers because to maintain that bond is something where you need to pay premiums. And that, that opt that premium on the bond could be uh, either paid to service the bond or paid directly to the landowner for rent. So it does become a bit of an economic trade-off. Um, would the would the landowner rather take that money in their pocket as rent, or would they rather impose that on the developer to maintain a performance bond? Uh, unlike wind projects, solar is much less invasive to it's a much less involved process to decommission, and and I think that is one of the things that landowners should be aware of is. It's not going to we don't they don't have to dig these uh, wind turbines out of the ground. And there's not a big question of a major amount of subsurface utility lines that are put down underneath it. And and those lines for wind turbines are going to run for miles. Um, typically, solar projects are going to have much less subsurface infrastructure. It's just going to require removing these panels and these posts from the ground. Um, and and I, I think that is something that's worth looking into from the landowners that there isn't quite as much exposure at the end of these terms as there would be with some of the other projects that they've seen, such as cell phone towers or wind turbines. Clark, I'd just be interested in what you're hearing from people out there on the ground. What things have we not covered that either you're hearing or farmers and landowners should be asking from your experience dealing with these types of leases? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one of the things I think about uh, that Nathan kind of mentioned was just what's going on during the option period. There's a, a bit of a stigma amongst landowners that that solar developers are out to land grab. And if as long as you're avoiding those early stage flippers who are just trying to make a quick buck and, and they don't 
seem to care and maybe they are uninformed. Um, so the point at which a developer is willing to start paying you option premiums as well as um, start to invest their you know development capital into the actual project upon completion or execution of a lease option agreement, that they've already made the decision that they want to try to put a project there you know, almost all the time, if you're working with a reputable group that is strategic and they've got a strong thesis and they're very directional and what they're trying to do or what they're trying to accomplish. So most landowners think that it is a, hey, let me land grab this thing, compare it, see if I like it, think about it, um, and then say no and terminate if I'm not, if, if I'm no longer interested from the perspective of the developer. When, when the reality is, as soon as they start ready to is they're ready to spend money that that three to four year period of time or two to four year period of time where uh, most landowners think developers are just kind of hanging out waiting on permits or waiting on a couple things it's not typically the developer moving slowly that keeps it from happening faster anytime you connect to the power grid there's just large implications and there's a lot of red tape and so it just takes a long time it's not that groups are trying to grab land as much as it is that's just kind of the nature of the slow moving process anytime you're working with a utility or a governing authority i think i think one point that clark was making was oftentimes the biggest the biggest hold up in these projects is at the utility level not necessarily the developer and the developers are burdened significantly with um, application fees and uh, non-refundable deposits even to to put in these projects into the queue um, and so that that is why there's there's um, a high barrier to entry for developers to get into the solar world we have a lot of landowners that are that have come to us and said well can I just build a project myself um, and I think what they'll find is there's so much you know there's it's expensive and it's time consuming and there's a lot of engineering and risk to going through that process. And that's why most developers are going to identify an area or sites and usually work several of them in either a state or, or, a, or an invest, excuse me, in a utility service territory. Um, you know, the idea of going out there and trying to build one project on your own because you have a piece of property, it's a pretty high stakes game. So Nathan, to wind up then, other things that we should be thinking about with these projects. Uh, again, you've been out there with these uh, quite a while, so other things that we should be on our mind. You know, some things in the contracts that are worth that are worth considering that landowners might not be thinking about is tax implications. That's one thing. Um, if there's any sort of agricultural uh, conservation easements or agricultural programs that they're part of that might have some sort of tax penalties if they get pulled out of those programs. That's that's a good question to ask the developer and, and dig into how those are going to be paid, and if there's any sort of penalties on the tax taxes, how those will be, um, if the developer is willing to bear bear some of those or share some of those costs. In our experience, most of the time, developers are willing to do that. Um, but if you don't ask that question, it might not be in the contract, and it might be tough to claw back later. I appreciate the time and the conversation. If people are interested in connecting with both of you, is the best way just to go to nationallandrealty.com? Is that the, the best source? Actually, our website is nlrsolar.com, and we have a full suite of resources for landowners, some educational material on solar projects, some blog entries that we've written. 
And we'd be more than happy to talk to landowners about their property and give them a preliminary analysis just from our view of if it would work for solar or not. So there's a way to get in touch with us on our website. I appreciate both of you uh, talking about this. It's a topic that a lot of us have on top of our mind, and so I appreciate the time. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks for having us, and we're happy to have a candid conversation like this with uh, any, any landowners that want to talk with us as well. Thanks for listening to our show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and now TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside. We're always using those social media platforms to share more information, pictures, and videos during the week. And remember, you can hear these shows in a variety of ways as well at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.